reading today is taken from Luke chapter 10, 25 through 37. It's Luke chapter 10, 25 through 37. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Some of you know that uh, I flew out to um, our annual synod meeting. Uh, We flew out, my wife and myself, uh, Friday night. And it was frustrating because um, we kind of booked the ticket last minute. We wanted to get the cheapest ticket we could get. So we had to fly into JFK and... As soon as she told me, she she booked it. And I said, where'd you book it? She said, JFK. And I go, oh, you know, that's just going to be a trip in and of itself, getting in and out of that airport and shuttling over to the rent-a-car and then getting out of the city and crossing the bridge and all that stuff. But we did it, and it's, you know, it was kind of frustrating. We had Lincoln with us, and so we have the baby. We have the stroller, and I'm carrying this car seat. And We get there, we have our meeting, and it's, it's okay. You know, we talk with some pastors, and we talk about spiritual things, and maybe some things less spiritual, but we talk about church and talk about all this good stuff. Then we've got to go. We've got to pack our stuff and do the same thing in reverse. And we finally get the rent-a-car back, and we get on the shuttle, which takes us back to the airport, and then we get on the train, which takes us from that place back to the terminal, and we finally get to the... Uh, line where we have to check our bag and check this car seat and we go through security and and Lincoln's fussy and he's starting to cry and he's hungry. Well, he's always hungry, but that just compounded it. <laughs> we finally get on the plane and we're sitting there and it's stuffy. It smells like an airplane. It's just, it's just this skinny tube and it just... We're not claustrophobic, but I just imagine that if I were, I, I just couldn't... It's just so tiny in there. It's packed. There's people everywhere and Frustration builds. And finally, Tina makes a comment that I probably took the wrong way just because I was so frustrated. And it turns out later that she didn't mean it anywhere near what I thought it meant. But I I just took that and I just, just became this cantankerous person the whole rest of the evening. And then so I get off the plane and I'm like looking for the stroller and I grab and I open it. And I hate strollers to begin with. Everyone operates differently and there's levers and buttons and it's a pain in the neck. And Put the baby in there. I'm, I'm, I'm doing that fast, I'm ticked off walk, you know. 
And uh, we get in the car, and, and she's trying to find the exit. And I, I snap at her, and she goes, oh, you know what? You drive now. You guys know I hate driving. So you know how frustrated I was to say, you know what? I am going to drive. And so I get out of the car, and we switch spots, and I get in the and I'm driving now, you know. So we ended up in Wisconsin. No, we didn't. So I get in the car, and I slam the door, and I put my buckle in, and I'm just so frustrated. And we start driving, and I get out of the parking deck, and I go to that little booth with the lady sitting in there taking people's tickets. And, and I'm like, where's the ticket? They're, okay, and I take it, and I give the lady the ticket. And she goes, H-I-S-C-L-A-Y. And I'm like, she trying to spell my name? Because I can't begin to tell you how off you are. What'd she say? H-I-S-C-L-A-Y. What is that? And I'm like, oh, his clay. That's our license plate. Now, I know I'm supposed to go, oh, what a marvelous evangelistic opportunity. But in my frustration, I think, I can't believe Tina got that plate. I did not want that plate. Well, here we go. In my moment of frustration and not being very kind to my wife, I'm asked about what this plate means. And that plate, it took me a minute because I see it every day. It's on the front of the van. It's on the back of the van. And we've been asked before, but it's not that often that we... You hear what it asks, and she said, what's that mean? Well, his, and, and I have to switch from this terrible person into Pastor Lucas for a second. And it was a little bit awkward, and I started out almost saying, come on, hit the potter. You know, I mean, and I'm like, it's, it's an Old Testament thing. You know, God is the potter, and we're his clay, and he's supposed to form us and make us like him. I'm a jerk. I see the plate all the time, and I've explained it so many times that it just loses its freshness. We take things that are so familiar to us that were once very powerful, and we end up putting it on a shelf, and it just becomes a decoration in the background. It's like the song that you heard so many times that at one point you had to learn the lyrics, that at this point you don't even hear the lyrics anymore. It's just background noise. We're going to turn to a passage this morning that for many of us has become that background noise or that word that we see all the time, but it doesn't strike us as new and fresh. And so I want to invite us to a word of prayer so that that won't be the case when we dive into it now. Let's pray. Father, we want to open your word and receive it. We want to hear your word and accept it. We want to see it and yield to it. And so we ask that by your grace, you would give us the strength that we need to do that. And we've come in here with many distractions. We've come in here with many things running through our minds, heartaches and pains from the week, or maybe even the joy of what we're going to get to do when we leave here. But in this moment, we ask that those things, we could be put to the margins of our mind and that we could focus and settle at your feet, Jesus, and hear what you have to say. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Imagine for a second you hear somebody ask me that. 
maybe it's after a church service or you bump into me at Dominic's or something and we and you introduce me to your friend and your friend goes, you're a pastor? And I say, yeah. And I, I've got this burning question. And what's that? What do I do to inherit eternal life? I've never gotten a question like that. Usually you have to draw that out of people or hope that people get to that point. But if somebody asked me point blank like that, imagine I said, well, what do you think? And then they say, well, how about I love God a lot and I love people a lot. Would that get me into heaven? And then I go, yeah, do that. And you'll live forever. And they go, thanks. What would you say? Now, some of you might go, well, that doesn't sound like what Lucas preached before. Now I'm confused. Some of you wouldn't be confused at all because you already understand why I preach the other way. That we can't do our way into heaven. We can't work our way into heaven. And some of you get on the phone and call one of the elders and go, can you guys check Lucas's theology real quick? Because he was just asked, what, he, what's, what, what can we do to inherit eternal life? And he said, well, love. Maybe he was listening to the Beatles or something. All we need is love. All we need is love. Love is all we need, you know. But that's not what the Bible says. You know, and I agree with you. But Jesus gets that exact same question in Luke chapter 10. And he answers that exact same way. Look at it with me in Luke chapter 10. Uh, Luke is stringing these stories together. And Jesus just sent out 72 disciples and taught them how to preach, taught them how to minister. And then he, Luke introduces this story in verse 25, Luke chapter 10, verse 25. And Luke says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to him to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. He doesn't mean you'll live another day. He's, asking, he's answering the question about eternal life. Do this and you'll be in heaven. Do this and you have eternal security. Do this and you will see the Heavenly Father. Now why would Jesus answer this way? And see, we're so familiar with the story. We're like, yeah, we know Jesus answered that way. But if you never read the story before, you read all of Paul's epistles and you read James, and you read the other Gospels and the other accounts, where Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes far but by me and all this stuff. And you get to this passage, and you're like, wait a minute. Why would he answer that way? Well, let's make a couple notes first. First, um, the first thing we notice is that the question is not a genuine one. This guy's not coming up to Jesus going, I'm so lost and I'm so broken what do I do? I'm, I'm, I'm lost. I'm going to die in hell. What do I do? To... He's not asking that. He's trying to trap Jesus. He's a lawyer, not like uh, an insurance attorney or a criminal justice expert. He's an expert in the Mosaic law. He's an Old Testament scribe. These guys would wear the scrolls on their wrists and on their foreheads in little boxes. 
And they'd take it out and read it. And, yep, I've memorized it correctly. These guys were experts in the law. That's why Jesus turned around and said, well, you know the answer already. Anyone ever ask you a question and you know they're just trying to trap you and you go, well, I don't know, but I have the feeling you're going to tell me, aren't you? Yeah, I'm going to tell you. They're not asking because they want to know. They're asking the trap. And so Jesus isn't answering a genuine question, but he still still goes with it and he asks them, well, what what do you say? Now, this is the perfect opportunity for the lawyer to come up with the wrong question and for Jesus to slam him and go, ha, see? Expert in the law, right? You're wrong. But surprisingly, the guy comes up with his answer and Jesus goes, yup, that's it. You do that and you'll live. And that's where you and I read it and go, I don't get it. Um, The guy comes up with his answer and he bases it on two passages. You don't have to turn. There's Deuteronomy 6, 5. In Leviticus 19:18, Deuteronomy 6 is where we get uh, that law where God calls Israel to honor Him as one and love Him with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And then Leviticus 19:18 is where the Israelites learn that you need to do all these neighborly things that the law spells out for you because you're supposed to love your neighbor as yourself. And so when Jesus turns around and says, "Well, what does the law say? You tell me." How are you supposed to inherit eternal life? And he tells them, well, love God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, that's right. Now, if the guy was being honest, he would have said, wow, thanks. And then go try to do that. But, But he knows something that we're missing. Look at verse 29. Here's how he responds. The conversation doesn't end there. It can't end there. Jesus knew it wouldn't end there. In verse 29, But he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, Well, and who is my neighbor? Now, it's, it's easy to miss what's happening here because uh, we skip that part and we just want to jump straight into the parable that follows, the parable of the Good Samaritan. But he asked Jesus, Who is my neighbor? In other words... Love God with all my heart, all my soul, my strength. Check. Love your neighbor as yourself. Check if we agree on what neighbor means. And you remember that Mr. Rogers would come on and he'd, he'd look at you through the screen. And maybe you feel dejected by your dad or maybe your mom is working two jobs and you feel alone at home and he comes on in the morning And he says, I'd like to be your neighbor while I put on my cardigan and switch my shoes for no apparent reason. Flip them in my hand and show you some tricks. But I would love for you to be my neighbor. Could you be mine? Would you be mine? Would you be my neighbor? And you're like, yeah, well, yeah. (laughs) We all know that we can look at people and say, yeah, I want that person to be my neighbor. When you're driving through a neighborhood and you're thinking about buying a house, don't lie. The first thing you do is you check out the school district and you check out who lives in that block. Ooh, looks like some other kind of people are moving in. Well, maybe I'll check another block. I mean, who's my neighbor? The guy that literally lives next door? Is that my neighbor? Because I can do that. Even if he's a jerk and he doesn't, you know, cut his side of the lawn and his dog 
does his duty on my side of the lawn, and, and it makes me really mad. But but if if eternal life means I just have to love this guy, I could I could probably do that. So let's let's define neighbor. Every time I jump on the CTA, everybody that sits next to me, that's my neighbor. At work, the scoundrel that sits next to my cubicle, who is a horrible, horrible person, is that my neighbor? And so Jesus, answering that, decides to tell a story. And he tells a story that we're familiar with, most of us. Verse 30, Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance... A priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. So Jesus is setting a scenario that is familiar to everybody in that time. This was not some made-up road from Jerusalem to Jericho. This was an actual steep, dangerous uh, decline um, and Robbers would frequently camp out in nearby caves and wait for people to pass by that look like good victims and they'd jump them, mug them, take their stuff and maybe wait in a cave for the next victim. And so you've got a priest, which today is like maybe a pastor, and then you've got a Levite, which today is maybe like a worship leader. You know, These guys are in church. These guys lead worship. These guys know scripture. These guys teach it. And they're walking down this road and they know that the world is dangerous and they know that they probably need to walk quickly. Um, and then they see this guy and he's, and he's bloody and he's beat up and maybe they're concerned about uncleanness and maybe they're concerned about being associated with some loser and they want to maintain their holy appearance. But whatever it is, they... They don't just, oop, step over the guy. They cross to the other side. You know, let's just pretend that's not there. So right there, the lawyer, the nearby people who have such high respect for priests and Levites go, oh, that would be awfully messed up of the priests and the Levites to do that. Where's Jesus going with this? Maybe Jesus is going to talk about a third person who doesn't have degrees. Of just a good Jewish boy who grew up in the synagogue and is not a priest. Or maybe just because he wasn't born in the right family, couldn't be a Levite. And maybe Jesus' point is going to be, look, it doesn't take degrees to love God. It doesn't take scribe. You don't have to be a scribe. You don't have to be a Levite. But Jesus probably saw that coming, so he made it worse. And then he said in verse 33, But a Samaritan, but a Samaritan, and I, I, you know, for those of you that have been here, done that, I don't want to hash it, but for those of you that aren't familiar with what a Samaritan was, they were half-breeds. Maybe some of you remember that when you would bring dates home to your parents, they would love on them and bake, you know, pies and have them sit at the table. And, and you know that your parents are very open and very loving if you bring people home, but they better not be of a certain race. You knew that if you brought home an Asian woman, 
a black guy, a Hispanic person that your parents would would freak a little bit. And the reason why is not because they're all out racist. They go to 7-Eleven, they're nice to that guy. They go to the, the gas station, they're nice to this guy. They, they bump into somebody in the, in the mall and they, hey, how are you doing? Might even handshake. But don't you date my daughter. So I'm not going to have half-breeds as my grandkids. My Samaritans were the half-breeds. Now this Samaritan comes and he's like, well, just how some of you are uncomfortable right now, imagine the lawyer standing there wishing he didn't bring this up. And Jesus says, now listen to what the Samaritan does in contrast to the other two guys. As he journeyed, came to where he was. He didn't cross to the other side. He came to where that guy was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. He probably tears his shirt. He's got some oil. He's got some wine for that dinner he's going to. And he realizes that these have medicinal aspects to them, and he pours them on the guy's wounds, tears some stuff up, maybe the thing around his head, and he takes it off, and he wraps them up, puts them on his own animal. Now he's got to walk at a slower pace in danger of other people taking advantage of suspecting victims. And this guy obviously had money. He could have been robbed. But he takes all that stuff, all those resources. He changes his schedule, and he takes this guy to an inn, puts him up, stays with him. And then he tells the innkeeper, look, make a tab for me. And anything he needs, just put it on my tab. I'll be back, and I'll pay you. Don't charge him. And so Jesus uses an unlikely example, an unlikely source of help. And Jesus did this to show the lawyer that, to to respond to the lawyer's desire to rule out certain kinds of people. Well, who's my neighbor? Surely not those kind of people. Who's my neighbor? Not those guys. And he's saying those people can be the exactly the, the sort of thing that I'm talking about. To even someone like you if you got jumped. So Jesus is trying to break down those lines that 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 we draw around we try to box in who our neighbor is going to be, and Jesus is trying to push that out by using the example of a Samaritan. Now I want you to notice something interesting in this passage is the repetition of the word do. It's a repetition of the word do. In the beginning, he asked them, what must I do? What do I have to actually do to inherit eternal life? And then Jesus, in verse 28, after the lawyer said, well, love God and love your neighbor. And Jesus said, well, do that. Do this and you will live. And then after this whole passage, he asked the lawyer in verse 36, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? The lawyer responded like this, well, the one who showed mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. You go and do like the Samaritan did. 
And so this is repetition of what are you supposed to do to inherit eternal life? What can you do to be saved? What can you do to meet the Heavenly Father? Is this what Jesus was teaching? I mean, is this, is this about gaining an eternal life by doing? When all the other, these other passages of Scripture contradict that. That it's not about doing, it's about who you know. It's not about what you can work, it's about grace that you get from God. I mean, we have a whole course on it here called Grace 101. All four sessions about the same thing. You can't do it. The only way to heaven is by grace. But here's Jesus being asked what can be done. And then he says, well, what do you think can be done? And they say, well, I think this can be done. And he goes, yeah, well, do it. And you will live. So is, is Jesus teaching that you can get to heaven by doing? In one sense, it seems that the answer would be yes. But it's a certain kind of doing. I mean, this isn't a Boy Scout deed of the day kind of doing. This isn't walk one little old lady across the street once a day, and you'll get into heaven. And so what I want to do for a second is to rewind and back up to that verse that's stuck in the lawyer's scroll and that is maybe in the back of your mind and in your Lincoln Brewster CD, and it just we don't pay attention to what it's saying. Back up to what he says. He asked the lawyer in verse 27, and the lawyer answered, You shall love the Lord your God. How? With all of your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind. Now I have a question. Is that doable? Are you loving God right now? Maybe. Are you loving Him with all your mind? What are you thinking about right now? How much longer is he going to talk? I mean, is it all of your mind? With all of your body? I'm kind of hungry. He usually ends around 12. I think I'll go to Bona. I mean, is it, is it, is it everything? I mean, do you have everything? All of your mind, your soul, your strength. Your body, your spirit. Your thoughts, your emotions, everything, everything in life. Nothing is being pulled aside to any kind of distraction because it's all love for God. Is that possible? Is that doable? And then it get, then the rubber hits the road. You all can sit here and go, yeah, yes, with everything. I love Him with everything. All right. Do you love your neighbor as yourself? Your neighbor's driving a jalopy and you just bought your third car since they bought that jalopy. Would you let yourself drive a jalopy? No, you wouldn't. That's why you have a new car. Now I'm not trying to say, I'm just trying to point out what the lawyer recognized. This is no sort of, yeah, do this, check. And you can't check that box. You can't love God that purely. And you can't love neighbor as yourself unless... You dumb it down. Unless you draw lines around it and say, well, the neighbor that literally lives right next to me. Now, Lucas has it kind of tough because there's all these townhomes. Well, I'm just going to pick the one that's closest, the, mo the one most adjacent to the parsonage, and that'll be my neighbor. And then just love that person. See, that's what the lawyer was trying to do because he recognizes you can't do this. 
You can't love everybody as yourself. That's impossible. We're too selfish for that. Well, the first thought that comes across our minds in the morning is something about me. And the last thing I think about at night is my job, my health, my situation, my family. I don't think about the guy over across the street, let alone somebody suffering in the Gulf. Or, you know, these are all just nameless, faceless people that I hear about in the news, but I don't stay up thinking about them. I think about me. And so we have this natural inclination to, to not love others as we love ourselves. And so what Jesus is saying is, what does the law say? No, I want you to read it. Take it out of the little thing on your head, lawyer, and read it to us. And you tell me how you read it. Well, love God with all, with all, with all, with all, and your neighbor as yourself. He goes, you're right. Do that. You know what crossed the lawyer's mind? I can't do that. But I still want to gain eternal life. So the only way I can get from A to B, from where I am to eternal life, is to redefine what I just read. And if I could define neighbor in a way where it's easy, if I can define neighbor in a way where it's doable, then I can do it. So who's my neighbor? Let's define that. And Jesus said, okay, I'll define it. And he tells him a story. And at the end of the story, Jesus flips the question around. At the end of the story, he doesn't ask the guy in verse 36, which of these three do you think qualifies to be your neighbor? That's not what he says. Which of these three do you think became a neighbor to the person in need? And so the guy is asking, well, who's going to be my neighbor out there? And Jesus is saying, you're asking the wrong question. It's not who out there qualifies to be my neighbor. It's I need to be a neighbor. And so in a very subtle way, Jesus shifts the question from what can I do to what you need to become. No, you can't fulfill that law purely. Not without becoming something different than what you are. And you can't love everybody as a neighbor, but you can be a neighbor to people if you become one. If you experience some kind of change where you stop looking at the world in terms of who I can do, who can serve my needs or who can who's somebody that's lovable oh i can't do that and start looking through god's lens and saying who can i serve who who can i be the neighbor to and so jesus is speaking of the necessity of a transformation of your being in order to live according to this kind of doing we know that it's impossible Isaiah said it in chapter 64, verse 4, when he said all our righteous deeds, not all of the stupid things we do, all of the righteous things that we do, they're like polluted garments in front of God. I mean, there's no, there's no way you can crawl out of this hole. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, there's another familiar passage. Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. So how do you get from A to B? Being in Christ. How do you change your being? How do you become a neighbor? How do you become someone that's so constrained and compelled by the love of Christ and God's compassion for people that you are God's very vessel to people? You are now the neighbor. So anyone who crosses your path is a neighbor because you are one. How do you get to that point? Find yourself in Christ. 
And we don't have to go far to see this. All of Luke chapter 10 is built, is nailing this, driving this home before we get to the Good Samaritan. When he sends out the 72, he trains them how to teach the gospel, how to, how to go into towns and present the gospel to people. And look at him, if you will, really quickly in, in, in chapter 10, back up to verse 15. And he's telling the disciples, he's, he's, he's rebuking these towns that, that are going to reject the disciples. And he says, you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? In other words, are you guys going to go to heaven? You guys that reject my disciples' message, will you guys inherit eternal life? No. He says what? You shall be brought down to Hades. You're, you're not going to be in heaven. You're going to hell. If you don't accept my disciples' message, why? Look what he says in verse 16. The one who hears you, the disciples, hears me, Jesus. And the one who rejects you, the disciples, rejects me, Jesus. And the one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. Well, who sent Jesus? The Father. The Heavenly Father. The Father in heaven. So how do you get to heaven? How do you get to the Father? It's through Jesus. He just said it. And then if that's not enough, in verse 20... The disciples came back and said, wow, this was an awesome missions trip. I mean, we were casting out demons. People were foaming at the mouth, and I just said something to him, and then he was healed. I mean, it's amazing power that we have. We feel like Jedi Knights going out there, just walking around with power and waving our hand, and people. And Jesus says, don't, that's awesome, but don't rejoice in that. You rejoice in something much more foundational to that. Look at what he says. Do not rejoice in this. That the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. I mean, rejoice in the fact that you have eternal life. And you're telling people how to get it. By telling them to not reject me. And then in the next few verses, he thanks the Father that the gospel is true. Now look at verse 22. He says, all things have been handed over to me by my Father and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. It takes a couple minutes to let that sink, but here's what he's saying. He's saying, if anybody sees the Son, they see the Father. If you want to get to the Father in heaven, if you want eternal life, you've got to see the Son. Then like that, Luke drops in the parable of the Good Samaritan. Why? Because this guy wants to know, how do I get to heaven? And Jesus says, well, well how do you, what do you think? And he goes, well, by doing this. And he goes, can you really do that? No. And then leaves you hanging. The credits roll. And you're like, wait, what? And you have to rent the DVD and watch it again and go, wait a minute. What Jesus is implying is you can't do it. I know you can. You remember the rich young man that came up to Jesus and he asked the same question. What can I do to gain eternal life? And Jesus goes, okay. Take all your money and give it away. Now, are we going to say that everybody who's rich in Itasca or wherever, if they want to get to heaven, all they have to do is give all their money to Greenpeace or something, you know, and just, they'll get to heaven? Of course we know that's not true because we read the rest of the Bible. Well, what's Jesus doing? He wants the person to understand why they can't do it. He says, give all your money to the poor. And he says, I, I can't do that. And he walked away dejected. Jesus is trying to point out the things that you can't do without knowing him. And so, he teaches pretty clearly, I think, that you don't get eternal life by seeking out which neighbors you're going to love. And we do that. You get eternal life by becoming a neighbor who loves. 
And that transformation can only happen with Christ. So let's reevaluate Christ's evaluation to this guy. Reevaluate Christ's response to this man. When initially Jesus says, well, do this and you'll live. We sound like, wow, that sounds like salvation might work. Isn't he supposed to confess sin? But Jesus is going to get him to that point once the guy recognizes he can't do it. And if this lawyer comes to the point where he says, I can't do that. Is there any other way? Then I think Jesus would give it to him. I'm the way. I mean, if this guy comes to the point, rock bottom, where he goes, as much as I know the law, and wrap it around my wrist and memorize it and teach it, as much as I know it, I I can't do it. What else else is there? Jesus goes, "There's, there's a way to become instead of do. You become a neighbor, points to himself as a way to that. Jesus is saying that the person who inherits eternal life is a person who loves in supernatural ways. If you leave here, you go to a restaurant, you go to Olive Garden or something, and you're like, I'm going to tip them a couple extra bucks because I'm a neighbor. All right. But that's kind of cheap. Because you know why? There's a table of Muslims behind you that tip more than you. That's why. What's really the difference that Jesus is driving at? Anybody could tip a waiter who does a good job. Anybody could love somebody and thank them and give them money for pulling over and helping you change a tire. But to love in a supernatural way where without Christ, it wouldn't be possible to love like that. That wouldn't be possible. That's the love that people are going to see when they come in here and look at your lives and go, that's different. It's the tough stuff. It's loving your enemies. It's forgiving the unforgivable sin. And you need to grip grip with that. And you need to come to the point where you go, hey, I've heard the Good Samaritan so many times, but am I really really getting that, that point that I can't love like that? Purely and without selfish motives, unless I spend time with Jesus. You know what the next passage is, right? Mary and Martha going crazy. Well, Martha's the one distracted with all these preparations and Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet. That's the very next passage that Luke gives for us. Why? Precisely this point. Martha is busy doing a bunch of stuff thinking that doing is going to get her something and Mary is busy being. And Jesus tells Martha, don't rebuke Mary for what she's doing because she knows what's necessary. The first thing, love God first, then love people as yourself. If you don't love God purely and have that relationship with God, you can't do the horizontal stuff. You need to know God first. If you want to see the Father, you need to see the Son. I think you and I, we're loving people. We're kind, we're nice, but too many times we just stay within the bounds of what's doable. Do you love in ways that you need Christ to do it? Or do you love like anybody can love without Christ? Let me put it another way. What lines do you draw around your compassion? Maybe some of you are opportunists, you know, when you were a kid in high school and you saw a cute girl drop her books and you're like, oh, I'll help you with that. And maybe you thought you were being a good Samaritan, but, you know, it's because she was cute. And then another dorky guy with acne and broken glasses in the middle and he smells like B.O. or something and everybody hates that guy. He drops his book and you're like, loser. Where do you draw the line? And that one's kind of cheap because that one's kind of easy. Okay, I'll pick up the books of even the guy that smells. I can't get anything out of it. 
I'll probably lose something. I'll probably lose clout in the class, you know, because I won't be prom king because I'm hanging out with this guy. But Good Samaritan, fine. That's still kind of easy. But how about this one? You haven't talked to your father in years. Now that he's getting older in age and he's not quite as aggressive as he was able to be when he was younger, I feel a little bit bad for him. And he never said sorry for the things that keep you up at night, for the things that make you angry and yell at your kids, the things that make you hate yourself sometimes because you swore you would never be like him and then sometimes you are. And because he's getting older in his years, you realize... Maybe it's time to go and forgive him. But in the back of your mind, you're thinking, I wonder how much he put for me in his inheritance. I better make things right. You don't tell your wife that. You just give him some, you give her some story about, yeah, yeah, you know, we need to forgive. But there's something else back there. See, that's drawing lines around your compassion. What if you knew when you stopped to help this person that needed help, they would get up, curse you to your face, take your money, and walk away? Would you still do it? What if you knew that the people that you would be a neighbor to couldn't be a neighbor back? Would you still do it? That's supernatural. That's what we need Christ to do. I can't close out the sermon without addressing something that I think that Jesus intentionally brings up, and that's the issue of racism and prejudice. That's one of the easiest places for us to draw lines. I get really tired of hearing people tell me stories about a black person and then you realize their blackness had nothing to do with the story. I mean, this jerk just pulled behind me, this this black guy driving his car and he pulled behind me and and I couldn't believe that people drive like that. Why why is he black? If they were to be honest, they would say, well, you know, that's how they drive or something like that. Fill in the blank, Asian woman, old geezer, take their licenses away, you know, whatever we do. And we classify people and we put people into groups and then we draw lines on our compassion. Some of you may say, hey, it's impossible to not stereotype. Fine, say I grant you that. Go ahead and stereotype. Every time you see this kind of person, you cross the other side of the road because you feel you feel that that's that kind of person. All right, fine, categorize people. Even with those categories, you still need to be a neighbor to them. Now, Jesus isn't trying to say erase all categories, erase all past hurts. Erase all the things you think you see on the news that you think tell you about a certain kind of people. He's not saying erase that. He's saying through that, with that, in spite of that, love. Not because they could give anything back, but because you've become something other than you are. You've become a neighbor. You're mine. We want to define neighbor so we can make Christianity doable. If we do that, we miss it entirely. I want to ask Dave to come on up and get ready to close us out in worship. That beginning question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus' answer is become a neighbor. Stop defining neighbor and be one. Think of the greatest 
example of compassion you can think of and try to model that. Jesus had to come up with a fake one. Maybe he looked around him and didn't see a, a good model, so he just made, made up a story. Hey, there's a Samaritan. Here's what he was. But you and I don't have to come up with one because 13 chapters after this chapter, we see the perfect model. And that's a God who had every right to stay where he was. He came down as a person in humility to die for those who would kill him. That's the greatest demonstration of love that we have to follow. To serve people with humility and a driving, pulsing compassion that we get from Christ. That's compassion. Now you go and do likewise. Let's see.